Hi, and welcome to the miseducation of the SLP. It is I, Ingrid, returning for episode three. (sighs) Yay! So we are in season two, where I, of course, have kind of changed the format, as you guys have kind of noticed, um, after my discussions with Jay, in where I introduce a, you know, a discussionary topic that kind of helps us get more information rather than staying miseducated. And helping us move as a discipline to figure out what are we going to do to make the changes and see the changes we're looking for in different areas. And for the first couple episodes, you know, we really highlighted and discussed the CCC experience because of how many people annually really jump on social media with a level of frustration about it. And I'm not sure necessarily that our discussion helped to move the needle on that front. But it does put more responsibility on the SLP to kind of look at spaces that what are the solutions I can make? Because obviously being on social media, complaining about it isn't really making the changes that we want to see. ASHA's not changed their requirement of the C's and we are continuing to pay our annual dues. So when we're thinking about being more comfortable in our discipline, there's there is a tendency of all kinds of areas where we want to target. And one of the areas that I think are really important is the academic environment and what we're experiencing when we're going through school, when we are looking to our professors, our clinical leaders, and trying to get a gauge for the next generation of SLP experience from the time of application through the program. And so I decided, based on the recommendation of a wonderful friend of mine, I got in connection with a a wonderful academic who is going to now introduce herself and tell us a little bit about herself. So Natalie, take it away. Thank you so much, Ingrid. I'm so grateful for the time to talk to you today and your audience. So my name is Natalie Douglas, and I am a faculty member in speech language pathology at Central Michigan University. So we are a regional teaching institution in the middle of Michigan. So prior to my academic career, I worked as a clinician for about 10 years before transitioning into this academic space. So the majority of my work now is in improving care for people living with dementia in nursing homes and also in bridging the research to practice gap with a field known as implementation science. So trying to really move the needle, as you said earlier, um, in terms of research and the realities of clinical service provision. Wonderful. So in your experience of kind of guiding that study, that science, what are some things that you've introduced or changed through your process from the beginning of when you started to now, as you've become more and more sensitive to the basic, you know, variety in the American experience? What has been some things that you've kind of incorporated to change the direction and the education that you provide the people around you? Right. Well, One of the main reasons that I went back to school um, after practicing clinically was I was a um, hospital outpatient and SNF clinician. I did a little bit of home health. Um, 
And especially in that sniff setting, I just really felt honestly a lot of shame um, because I didn't think that I was helping anyone, even though I was trying my best. Um, I felt like I had practices that I wanted to do to help people, but I felt very constrained by the organization and policies. And I've heard you um, talk about that a little bit in season one of your podcast too. And I really resonated, you know, with a lot of those stories. And when I went back to school, I became introduced to this field called implementation science. And I was just, it was a beyond light bulb moment for me because to recognize that there was an entire discipline, not only acknowledging, but trying to do something about the research to practice gap. It gave me a lot of hope um, for myself and for the profession. And I think that what I've been trying to do, and I guess (laughs) the jury's out on if I was, had I been successful or not, is really move that, you know, thinking about research in a different way and conveying that to students. I think many times when we think of research, we think of a highly controlled, very sterile setting, a laboratory environment where you're essentially controlling everything except for maybe one variable that you're trying to study. And we know that in the real world, you cannot control anything. It's just there's, you know, factors coming at you at all sides. And what I've been trying to convey to students is that there is actually a systematic way that we can look at the literature and there's a systematic way that we can as ourselves, and I've heard you say this too, think about how we are approaching our clients and patients in terms of almost welcoming the messiness and welcoming the reality of the human experience into our data. And yes, that data is going to look very messy. um, And it's um, some would consider some of these research designs to be a lot more less traditional than, you know, a randomized controlled trial, but there are a lot of ways that we can scientifically conduct our studies that makes them more compatible with the clinical world. And so what I try to encourage students to do and what I'm trying to do myself is really as someone in the academic setting partner directly with clinicians and with, I'm in healthcare, so healthcare organizations, because it's just too separate. Like we can't be living in our silos and expect things to change. But if we can bring researchers and clinicians together, not in a hierarchical way, but in a way where we are trying to solve these extremely complex problems together, I have a lot of hope in that area and not everybody is into this and it's not necessarily for everyone. (laughs) That's for sure. But I feel like we're having a growing 
amount of, of, of people who are getting it, who are saying, you know, okay, it's, it's just too much. It's too much. There's too much of a gap there and we're, we're, our field is falling behind because of it. One of the things that I paid a lot of attention to in regards to science and how we discuss science mm-hmm. is my concerns that it is really especially rooted in the perspective of one type of scientist for this country. And so that is directly reflected in the space of speech pathology as well. Um, A majority of researchers have the similar background. A majority of research is done on patients with similar backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So as a practitioner from a completely different background, the clinical ability to take the foundation of the science and Mm -hmm. then individualize it towards my patient was something that I considered to be more of an important component of of scientific application. Be the scientist in the room was always my mentality. And it became a situation where it was case study by case study because I couldn't create you know, this, what you would consider sterile environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the value of that towards our science on a large scale is where I find us to be really at a space of disservice because yes. I don't think that there's enough respect for the clinical practitioners that only clinically practice for decades on end with patient-centered methods Yes. And they're not sought out after enough. And so the academic environment doesn't really have the resources to understand how to teach, how Mm -hmm. to do that in true form. So Mm -hmm. I don't know how we can have that solution without a level of outreach or connection to clinical practitioners that are just solely based on providing care with no other job agenda. Like there's people that do continue to practice, but like, it's like maybe part-time or per diem, you know, mm-hmm. with some hours here and there. But if you're a hundred percent entrenched in this for the last three, five, 10 years, and you are really great at patient-centered care, where do you think the potential is for that type of individual to be embraced in the, in the mm-hmm. academic environment in a teaching role without, mm. without a space of it being so what I would call academic base, because right. sometimes people want to transition to being a faculty member, but they have to kind of step into the bureaucracy of yes. what being yeah. an academics is. And that might not be the conditions that they want to do. So I'm trying to figure out what would be a good avenue for somebody who really wants to do this work of even be developing an academic course to say, this is the way that we critically assess based on the cultural or Mm -hmm. diverse background of this individual with multitudes of things that you have to take into consideration while also 
respecting the science that created the foundation of this section of care. How can, how do you suggest or consider, because this is out of, you know, nowhere for you. (laughs) I love it. How do you consider somebody's desire or interest in moving in that, being so familiar with the academic world? What would you, what advice would you give? What thoughts would you offer? Right. I, I think you have just described a massive problem in our field and honestly in most healthcare fields. And it's probably a good time for me to disclose that as I sit here talking to you, I am the 98%. I am the white woman. I am who this system was designed to protect and make succeed. Um, and I have, you know, it just is what it is. And I think it's a, it's a problem, but to pretend that I'm not, you know, I was basically made for the speech language pathology system. So I think I need to really disclose that and just own it, um, you know, before we get into this, but as you, you raise a lot of different points, the first point that you raise is, you know, I think potentially people might be aware of the fact that the majority of research has really been conducted on white men um, in all of healthcare. The majority of researchers are white men. Um, so in our field, along with many others in healthcare, it's white people who are conducting the research. It's white people who are participants in the research, unless, um, you know, there are very rare circumstances. And it's a great point that you raise in that that is the majority of our science. So that would be one question that I would ask is, what is the, when we talk about evidence, what are we talking about? So really thinking about who were the participants in that study? Where did they come from? You know, are they representative of our country? Um, and if not, put, interpret that with caution. And I think it's okay to do that. And one of the other thoughts that came to my mind as you were talking was this research methodology methodology called participatory-based research. So this is a situation where ideally, you know, the researcher could come from their own community and research with their community. So it's more of a nothing about us without us kind of, as opposed to, you know, the researchers are up high and they're researching on a certain population, but it's more of a community-based approach where ideally the researcher is part of that community to where we can um, gather conclusions that are much more culturally responsive. And we have some participatory-based research in our field, but not a lot. Um, It can be difficult to get that type of research funded. And again, by listening to a lot of your season one, the money situation is coming up um, yet again, but participatory-based research is something that comes to mind. The other suggestion that I might have um, 
for people is to look at something called practice-based evidence. So I think we talk a lot about evidence-based practice, but there is an emerging literature known as practice-based evidence. Where so, is this where is this coming out of? I know, isn't it amazing? So it's <laughs> I'm like, it's, what science is this? I know. So it's coming out of it started with medicine, just like with evidence-based practice. And we even have some articles, um, and I can send them over to you, um, in our field. And the idea is this is data that clinicians have taken in the realities of their service setting. So if it's schools, if it's hospitals, you know, or wherever it may be, um, now, I think that there's like logistical issues with this because it's like, where do we put that data? How do we, you know, organize it so that it's coming from, you know, one place? And I think that's a place where we have a lot of opportunity to brainstorm. But I think even this concept of practice-based evidence, I hope, empowers the clinician to say, hey, I am taking data and it's different right? It's not less than, it's just different. Um, but let's let some of these practice, let's let this practice-based evidence inform research questions, ideally, you know, so we can say, look, and again, it points to what you were saying earlier about the importance of collaboration and reaching out and really trying to dismantle this hierarchy of academia. And I think, you know, it's really, it's just so tricky because the way the system is set up right now, most researchers have to research what the funding mechanisms want you to research. So there will be a grant announcement saying that they want studies related to XYZ and so it's these funding mechanisms that can dictate the research because everybody wants their piece of the pie in terms of research funding. So I think that's another piece to this puzzle is advocating on behalf of the National Institutes of Health, um, the people who fund the major funders in education research that I'm less familiar with in terms of the types of research that they're funding, I think that could be another piece to this as well. Well, that is definitely some really good food for thought in respect to why our science studies what it studies, because the money is dictating what we study. Mm -hmm. um, do you think the academic environment would be interested in just practicing clinician, being a person that is participatory in the academic classroom on a regular basis, where for all courses, like for example, dysphagia is one of the most trickiest spaces, right? We talk about it sure. a, a great deal in, um, you know, the inconsistencies regarding having five SLPs looking at a modified barium swallow study mm. or bedside swallow study and coming up with right. five different solutions for the patient. Is there a way to introduce more clinicians that practice with three, five, ten years of experience into these academic classrooms 
um, as consultants in a manner? Or, you know, what what would be a better condition to allow for more of the reality to be a bridge into the academic space? Because it's because of the vastness of how different it is. I try to process like, well, what are the solutions we're trying to introduce to bridge the gap? Mm -hmm. It's supposed Mm -hmm. to be your clinical rotations, but no. (laughs) Um, It's just, it's too much supervision and it's kind of slow because Mm -hmm. during your rotation, you need to have the time to teach. So it is not the reality, no matter what, you are hitting the ground at 90% productivity when you get into your first sniff and nobody cares that you've never experienced this or know nothing about this. Or you may have heard the concept, but don't actually understand how to create a piece of documentation from beginning to end to create an eval or to do a clinical treatment in 15, 20, 30 minutes now with PDPM or any of these things in the adult environment or in the school environment where you have 115 kids on your caseload, how can we better infuse that while also giving the foundational information that is very, very crucial, which is all the extensive coursework that we take to get just the fundamentals what, what do you consider are some resource or some avenues that we can offer the academic environment that they would welcome based right. on understanding bureaucracy in that space? I know. I think that's a really great question. And I think a couple of things. For one, it's going to really depend on the institution. Um, for two, I know that here at Central, we are always... Um, welcoming and inviting clinicians to come as guest speakers to our courses to really try to bridge that gap. But here's the thing that kind of makes me a little uncomfortable with that is we can't pay them, right? So essentially, if a a clinician in the community offers their services to come to talk to my class, they're it's a community service, right? And if you think about it, that's the same way these clinical rotations are, right? In most cases, the supervisor is not paid to teach and mentor the student. And so, you know, oftentimes I will, you know, try to figure out like, what's their favorite coffee? What's their favorite restaurant, you know? Mm. But it's not, it's not valuing, their time or paying them their hourly rate, right, from the institution. So I think that's something to think about because I think many professors are very open to clinicians teaching their classes, you know, either if it's in a guest speakership or doing, you know, a few weeks at a time, but I don't, I would be surprised pleasantly surprised to hear if there were funding mechanisms to pay for that. And if it wasn't only a community service, Um, I think the other piece here is I would encourage those people again, if they wanted to apply for some of those clinical faculty positions, I think those are hugely important in bridging this gap. But again, I have never once met 
a clinical supervisor or a clinical faculty member that I've worked with that has not taken a pay cut, um, which is mm. something about, right? Because they want to do it. They want the environment of working with students and really shaping the future. And they, they, they're excellent at what they do, but if they're honest, they've taken a pay cut to get there. Um, so that's another consideration. I think that the other piece here, and I've heard you talk about this in your podcast before as well, is this issue of accreditation. So from the accreditation perspective, depending on how many, and I don't know the exact equation, but depending on how many students you have, you have to have a certain amount of PhDs teaching classes as an accreditation requirement. So you can have master's level teaching some graduate classes, but it has to be more than it has, there has to be more PhDs right now. Now, what I think might be a really interesting development is some of these SLPDs that are coming out. And I see them as really valuable in, again, combining some of that clinical experience, the real life of what it's like to be a clinician. But as of now, from an accreditation perspective, you would still have to have a PhD um, for the majority of your graduate courses. Now, undergrad is a little bit different. Um, there's because the undergraduate programs are not accredited. Um, so it's just a matter of individual institutions and, and what they decide. Um, however, once you get to that graduate level, then we're talking accreditation and then we're talking PhDs. So again, you know, I personally so value that clinical experience because I've been out for a while now and I'm always so happy to welcome those people to my class. Um, but I feel a little shady about it if I'm being totally honest because I'm asking them to do it for free or mm. for like a Starbucks gift card. Right. And I mean, some of them really want to, you know, we all choose our things that we do without compensation. Um, but it makes me pause and think like, why is there no, and maybe some institutions have a budget for that. I, I don't really know. Um, but it makes me pause and say, you know, why are we not compensating those clinicians for their time? And what else can we do about that? And why is it that clinical faculty have to take a pay cut? I mean, maybe not in all cases, um, but in most of you know, just my anecdotal experience and talking to folks. Well, that's a bit of a disappointing experience, but I kind of knew that. <laughs> does that, does that make sense to what, what you've seen? It really, I mean, ultimately it comes down to schools are run by presidents and CEOs and all of that jazz. And so you kind of have to get the people like the deans and, and so on and so forth 
to be on your team to say, we need to allocate for this. This is really critical to do better for the focused energy of patient-centered care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In every facet, absolutely every single facet, we are a business-driven country. Exactly. It's capitalism. Exactly. So the reality of trying to obtain a more uh, patient-centered model that will result in better clinicians, better systems, all of those things are what I would consider a mountain method or a Mm. needle in a haystack energy. Okay, yeah. Because of the aspects of how difficult is it to change the culture of a country that is rooted in capitalism to the detriment of other human beings. That is United States of America, plain and simple. It's always been a place that favored capitalism to the detriment of other human beings. Mm -hmm. And Originally, during spaces in healthcare, when it was your doctor was your neighbor. Yes. <laughs> Very right. community based, your healthcare provider, you knew their name, you knew, you know, their kids, you had more of a familial relationship with them because we were all part of smaller communities. Mm-hmm. It was a different experience altogether. Um, there was a medical uh, doctor that I was speaking to recently as I was explaining some things that had happened um, in my history in healthcare. And he said, you know what would have been much easier if we were just to continue to do segregated care? Oh my gosh. Way to just say it. Just say it out. Wow. And if we had continued to do segregated care, we would have just done better job for each other. Not to say that we had to be disrespectful to the other things that we were addressing or other people. Like I would not know the science for white people or not know the science for Asian people or not know the science. But if we had just been like, you know what, I'm going to gravitate to what makes sense to me, which Mm -hmm. is the person Mm -hmm. that has my face or my, Mm -hmm. my background or my culture I probably would just get better care. And he goes, in the space of propriety and this whole idea about equality, we're wanting to learn everything about everyone in a very diverse space. It's exhausting. Mm. So Mm. it probably would be more successful if we could do it in a space of just like, it's okay if you choose to segregate yourself to spaces that understand you. And I really had to ponder that because It wasn't necessarily a hate-driven suggestion. Right, right. He was was just speaking on it in the practicality of it. Right. That's really fascinating. I'll be thinking about that for a long time. Wow. Mm -hmm. People naturally move to the places that are the most comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. And complacency is real. Right. And um, for every culture that isn't normative or considered white in the United States, 
every single person has had to learn English in a way or white mm -hmm. American culture in a way or just how white people operate because that's the condition of this country. It's the reason you can go to some place like France. Well, maybe not France because they're kind of like, we're speaking French over here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you can go to a place like, you know, Dubrovnik in Croatia and speak English, no problem. Yes, exactly. Right. right. It's because of the idea that you've had to kind of understand another culture outside of yourself. So all the people that operate like that, we're used to stretching ourselves to accommodate something that is different than ourselves. Mm -hmm. And for people that are not used to that, to stretching outside themselves for reaching to something else, those are the power structure individuals. Yeah, right. Those are the people that set up the business model and those are the people that set up capitalism in the United States and the laws and the schools and the academic or business structure. Everything is conditioned based on those people that didn't want to step outside of what worked for them and did what worked for them. And anyone who falls within that parameter, it's really hard to get them to be flexible. Mm. And so that was the reason this medical doctor was making the statement that he made. He's like, it's just too hard for them. We generationally had to be different. We had to be two people at all times. And that's not them. They never had to do that. And it was a very jarring moment sure. in the conversation because I, I, you know, tell me how, what your, what are your thoughts on what this doctor stated in regards to all of that. Yes, it is. That is so thought provoking. And I really will be thinking about that for a very long time. And I really believe that we have a crisis of diversity in our profession. And I would love to see diversity increase across ability levels, race, ethnicity, gender, across all of these areas. However, again, I feel very tricky because I don't, as the 98%, as the blonde white woman, I don't know what it costs. And I can't pretend that I do. I don't know what it costs. Um, to enter this profession as a student, right? I, who is not in that 98%. Um, and I don't know. Well, it's, it's, it's 92, I want to say. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Still. We've got, we've got 8% <laughs> of diversity at this moment. But um, what I will say about it is this is a perspective I want you to process as I was thinking about what he said. Okay. The reason he said what he said is because it's easier than getting white people to change yes, okay, what right. they've been doing. <laughs> right, 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 right. And you being a person in the white environment, understanding all of the things that you're part of, do you agree that it's easier then for all our white allies, all of people like you to go in and try to change the mind of other white people, essentially, right. to 
think outside of the box and do a better job of being more culturally sensitive to people that have been in the same country, if not others that have immigrated in from the beginning that have a different experience in the United States of America. How hard do you feel as a person who's experienced your own culture, experienced Mm -hmm. your own people? How hard do you really think that would be? I think it's incredibly hard. And I myself, you know, I'm 42. And it's only in the past 10 years that I feel like I've even scratched the surface of my own knowledge and trying to do my own work. Um, I'm going to stop you because I want to ask something. You've been part of you've been part of this country your entire life during desegregation. What has been your your personal growth and experience mm-hmm. with things that were new to you? Because I don't I don't know what type of neighborhood you grew yeah. up in. What does that look like? No, I, I really appreciate that question. So I grew up in Northeast Ohio, which is a steel mill town, and all the steel mill mills closed. And so Um, very much working class, very much blue collar, all white and Italian. So like my um, grandparents, my mom is 100% Italian. My grandma was a first generation immigrant from Italy. Um, And it, it was very much that type of area in Ohio. And so it was always about like, you got to work. We got to work so hard. And so the first kind of um, reaction to like from my family and from other community members, when you say something like white privilege is to bristle, is to say, well, our mill closed down and we were out of work. And then the car plant closed down and then this closed down. And, um, it took me doing my own work to recognize that doesn't mean that you are not also potentially poor. That doesn't mean that you don't have problems. It means that your skin color did not contribute to those problems and that you're still benefiting from a system that was set up for people like you. And I think because I grew up in such a working class area, it took me longer to learn that. And I went from my working class area to speech pathology, which is mm-hmm. profession. And I had to start looking outside the field, right? And, and listening to voices outside of my own and and finding those voices myself um, and seeking those voices out that were different than mine and really listening. You know, I'm like, this this is not an area where I feel like I need to be doing a lot of talking, but I need to be doing a lot of listening. And that's where many, and I'm seeing their beautiful faces in my mind, students have of color have taught me um, this this is what I'm up against and this is what when you tell me when I go to my first day of school and I pull out my notebook 
but I'm the only one that doesn't have a laptop, right? Like th this, these are things that I wouldn't, you know, one of many perspectives that I have gained from really trying to listen um, to my students of color and honor their journey in, in this space. And um, many of them I would consider to be friends now and, and they've just taught me a lot and I owe a lot to these voices. But again, I think the more I basically the opposite of what I'm doing now, <laughs> the more I listen, the more I learn. Um, and I just have realized, and that's the other thing, like I'm super sensitive. I cry all the time. And that was the other area of growth for me because I just would walk around. Oh, I feel so bad. Oh, like, you know, the whole like classic white girl tears. Right. And that was mm -hmm. another period of growth for me where it's like, no, that is not helpful. It is not about you. That is not helpful to this discussion, but it, it has taken, it's taken years and it's not a journey that I feel like I've completed by any stretch. Um, but I'm, I'm willing to, I want to stay on it. And, and there's many times that I screw it up. Um, but I just, I, I got, we have to stay on this journey. I have to stay on it, but lots of opportunities for growth for sure. Well, I am so intrigued that I'm probably going to invite you for a part two as well, because I'm like, <laughs> I need to know more, mostly because of the simple fact that that's always been my biggest lack of understanding is like, why do we have to continue to have these conversations generation after generation? Mm. And desegregation was 1964. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, we literally have been on the same topic for so long. Right. And I understand why in the sense of the root of it all being so entrenched, but it's, a bit exhausting to to persons like myself looking at other individuals sitting here thinking to ourselves like how is it that you don't get that we naturally gravitate to spaces that are similar to us and you won't you refuse to get uncomfortable it's yeah. like you just refuse right. and but slap on the paint that it is comfortable and I wonder this in the spaces of academics, in mm -hmm. business, in clinical practice, and, you know, that overall trifecta that makes the speech pathology arena mm -hmm. between ACTA, between hospitals, school, you know, university education, all those key components make up what we're experiencing as professionals and it's rugged and rough and not what we signed up for with the ideals that are presented. Right. And with that disappointment, I, you know, found my need to have these conversations really. And I do want to have them with people that think similar to me, but I also want to have them with people that think differently because I think that's the crucial element. Right. That, that keeps getting lost. 
I, but you know how hard it is to get somebody who doesn't agree with me on this show? It's challenging. <laughs> because they don't want to be met with my point of view flat out in their faces. Oh, um, from what I've experienced, I've made attempts, but it's really fascinating. One day, one day one I'll get day, somebody. And they're missing yeah. out. Certainly mm-hmm. missing out. Yes. Well, I am going to wrap up this portion, we will reschedule to do a part two, because I think this was just so eye-opening and so healthy. And I think continuing to discuss the academic realm um, for the the clinicians that want to get into it, that want to kind of change the system in that aspect, as well as to discuss like what do we do about the bureaucracy of it all and how can we win? Mm-hmm. Um, as of right now, no one's winning mm-hmm. <laughs> in the bureaucracy mm-hmm. of academics. Mm-hmm. Everyone is conforming because they're so scared to rock any boats or make anyone uncomfortable. And that's really disappointing to me when it's supposed to be a place of breeding education. Why are we fearful? Mm-hmm. Why are we fearful? And this is really something that shows the nature of what we are in terms of conformity. There's like quiet threats all around us in this discipline. You know, if you don't pay your ASHA dues, if you don't do this, if you don't, there's like these tiny underbelly, you know, threats that are just constantly causing stress and discomfort. Mm -hmm. And you, the idea of protect your license, protect your license. I mean, this is a continuous, continuous discussion across our field. So I just think ultimately, we have a lot more to discuss um, and to unfold, but we've reached 45 solid minutes and then some. <laughs> so I'm going to end it now. But Natalie, I look forward to us talking again. Oh my gosh, me too. Thank you so much. <laughs> and until next time, guys, appreciate you for listening. And we will definitely have some juicy fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Bye.